I'd like to begin by inviting you to uh, come along with me on a musical journey. We'll begin at the second half of the 20th century. The year is 1965. And Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones wakes up one morning to discover that he had used his portable recorder the night before. For some reason, he doesn't remember doing it. <laughs> but he listens to the tape, and the tape is about uh, two minutes of this guitar riff, apparently, he couldn't get out of his head. But the rest of the tape was of him snoring. But in the weeks to come, as Mick Jagger would hear this tape, he, he, he took that and, and uh, at a, by a pool in a hotel at Clearwater, Florida, Mick Jagger would write the lyrics to one of the most iconic songs in rock and roll history, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. satisfaction. Well, what he could get was salty letters from grammar teachers chastising him for that double, double negative, right? <laughs> I just made that part up, I can't prove that. But he can't get no satisfaction, though he tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. Fast forward to 1977. A man named uh, Kerry Livgren was uh, doing a finger picking exercise on his acoustic guitar and his wife says, that sounds lovely, you should really put some lyrics to that. But he thought it was a bit off brand and not quite the style of his band, Kansas. But later on, when he would play the tune for his band, they outvoted him and saying, yes, absolutely, we're doing something with that song. And inspired by some Native American poetry, he penned the lyrics and the song became known as Dust in the Wind. I close my eyes only for a moment and the moment's gone. Now don't hang on, nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and not another minute can your money buy dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Fast forward another 10 years. 1987, when a guy named Paul, everyone else knows him as Bono, from everyone's favorite Irish rock group, U2, wrote of his experiences. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have scaled city walls. He talks about his experiences of love and lust and temptation, even spiritual experiences. But in the course, he concludes, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm almost waiting for you guys to break out in song or something like that. <laughs> Another 10 years, 1997 in Seattle, Washington, Dave Grohl, adjusting to life post Nirvana, was working on the second album of his new band, The Foo Fighters, when he writes a song called Everlong. And he was in love. And in the chorus, he is wondering if anything could ever feel this real forever. And if anything could ever be this good again. And in an interview, he, he talks about how the chorus is about how we have these moments in our lives, but they're so fleeting. I mean, we would, we would love to press pause, but they just slip right through our fingers. But we end our journey in the year 2003. Not a song that got really any radio play. It's a bit of a deep cut. It's from John Mayer's second album when he writes a song called Something's Missing. He says, I'm dizzy by the shopping malls. I searched for joy and I bought it all, but it doesn't help the hunger pains and a thirst I'd have to drown before I could ever satiate. Something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it.
later in the song, uh, he, he, there's this bridge where he's doing this checklist of everything going well in his life. He's like, I got friends, I got money, I'm well slept, my love life's going well, I got this guitar and microphone, I enjoy what I do for a career, I have messages waiting for me when I get home, all these good things, but still something's missing. Now this five decade journey and these lyrical witnesses testify to the fact of these universal aspects of the human heart. One is that we lament the temporary and transient nature of things, including ourselves, that we are not long for this world. We, we die and it feels as if we are dust in the wind. And time, time is so fleeting, it slips right through our fingers. It goes so fast, if only we could keep time in a bottle. That's Jim Croce, 1973. <laughs> but our life is less like time in a bottle and more like the Robert Frost poem, Nothing Gold Can Stay. But the other thing we lament is this this unsettled feeling of this unfulfilled longing, these unmet desires. I can't get no satisfaction. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Something is missing. We have this sense of ache, this emptiness, this hunger. Everybody's got a hungry heart. That's Bruce Springsteen, 1980. <laughs> it seems that we're dealing with issues of quantity and quality. Quantity, how much of something, quality, how good something is. We have an issue of quantity and quality of life. That's what we long for. We long for life and we long for satisfaction. And every worldview has to explain this aspect of the human heart. And I think we can do better than these are just survival instincts fobbed off on us by our genetics. But the Bible's explanation of this is not that these are things that we just daydream about because we've never had them, but rather these are things that we once had but have lost. We had this in the garden, in the garden of Eden, in the presence of God and with the tree of life, which point to God's life-giving presence and abundance. But because of our rebellion, we've been evicted from that space and we have been scratching and clawing consciously or subconsciously ever since to get it back. But alas, all of our humanistic versions of utopia have blown up in our face. But that brings us to our passage in John chapter six. Uh, to paraphrase the beginning of John six, this is the famous account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He's up on a mountain, he sees this crowd coming to him. He asks his disciples, how are we going to feed these people? Philip says, eight months wages wouldn't feed this many people. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. There happened to be a boy there, one boy out of all of them who actually came prepared, who had five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus multiplies the fish and the loaves and everyone ate until, until they had their fill. They ate and they ate and in fact, there were leftovers. There were 12 baskets full of leftovers, one 
for each disciple to hold in his hands a sign of the abundance that Jesus provides. But after that, the people say, they, they want to go and take Jesus and make him king by force. But it's kind of an interesting concept, isn't it? To take someone and make them to be king by force? Because if you take someone by force, who's really in charge? But Jesus would have none of it. So he by himself goes up the mountain. And as it's getting dark, the disciples take their one boat and they cross the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. But there in the night, they're about three to four miles across the lake. The wind picks up, but suddenly they see Jesus walking on top of the water. And it really terrifies them. But he, he assures them, it, it's me, it, it's I. He, so he gets into the boat and immediately they find themselves across the lake. Well, the next day, this crowd thinks, we want to go see Jesus again. And they knew that the disciples went with, without him, but they figured, uh, he's going to catch up with them eventually, so let's also cross the lake. Well, much to their surprise, as they crossed, they find him there with him. And they're thinking, well, when did you get here? They didn't know about the shortcut that he took across the lake. But we find ourselves here in John chapter 6 and in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it was not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up on the last day, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Here Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This is the first of uh, a number of times Jesus gives an I am statement. There are seven times in which Jesus simply uses the phrase, I am, like when he said, before Abraham was, I am. 
which of course for many would trigger the, the remembering of the name which God revealed uh, of himself to Moses at the burning bush. But this is also the first of seven times where Jesus says, I am the, like I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. And of course, John also records seven signs that Jesus gives to us of who he really is. So there's something with John and the number seven. Seven I am's, seven I am does, and seven signs. So of course, in Jewish thought, seven was the number of completion and perfection. But Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Bread in this culture, of course, was a staple food. You would eat it virtually at every meal. But bread, of course, could be a bit of a stand-in for all food. You know, when someone invites you to break bread, there's likely to be more than just bread at the table. But let's think about food for just a second. At a, at a basic level, what does food do for us? Well, food sustains our life. Without it, we will literally die. Food sustains our life, and it, it promotes uh, growth and recovery. It provides uh, strength and energy. But food also satisfies. It keeps us from having to walk around with this empty feeling in our stomachs. But not only does food satisfy our stomachs, it also, there's also an aspect about it that satisfies our taste buds, right? Our need to taste. I mean, I think it's easy for us to just to look over and take for granted the fact that food tastes good when it doesn't have to, but it does. I mean, God could have given us these bland, tasty, tasteless vitamin pellets for us just to swallow down. But I think the fact that food tastes and it tastes good says something about the character of God. I mean, even bread, as, as basic of a food that bread is, bread, bread is good. My favorite kind of bread is uh, a type of bread from India called naan, N-A-A-N. And if you find yourself with a piece of garlic naan, your life is going well. I am the bread of life. It preserves our life. And Jesus here is saying that he does essentially what bread does, but at a whole different level. He sustains our life, but more so gives us eternal life so that we don't die. And he satisfies. He satisfies our hunger. He says, I, I give eternal life, and whoever comes and eats this bread will never go hungry. I, Jesus saves and he satisfies. He deals with our quantity and quantity issue. But let's think of each of these a bit more um, individually. The fact that Jesus offers eternal life. Ever since we have encountered it as humans, humans have known that death is an enemy. Death is a thief. We can't just stoically say that, well, death is just part of life. It's not supposed to be. Death is a distortion of how things are supposed to be. I remember hearing a story of a Christian thinker talking about his grandfather's funeral and how his grandmother who was in her, how his grandmother who was in her 90s at the time was wondering, who's gonna hold my hand tonight? Because that's what his grandfather would do. Who's gonna hold my hand tonight as I sleep? And many well-meaning people were attempting to comfort her by saying, oh, you know, you had more than 60 years of a, of a good marriage. But she says, I don't care. I want more because she knows she had been robbed. 
she knows it's not supposed to be this way. For thousands of years, humans have come up with these stories, kind of fantasizing about, wouldn't it be cool if we lived forever? Wouldn't it be cool if there was eternal life? In fact, the oldest written document that we have that we know about in human history uh, is, a, is about the idea of human life. It, it's uh, called the Epic of Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is this Mesopotamian writing from about 4,000 years ago telling a story about a king called Gilgamesh, a bit of a ruthless king. And so the gods send a, a wild man, a, a beast type man to keep Gilgamesh in check. And this wild beast man name was Enkidu. And so Gilgamesh and Enkidu wrestle, right? And they're, they find that they're almost each other's equal, right? So they have this great wrestling match, but then they become best friends because them's the rules. To become best friends with somebody, you have to wrestle them. It's, it's a fact, it's a law. It's a law of life. Um, so they wrestle, and they become inseparable. But then once uh, Gilgamesh uh, refuses the flirtation, uh, flirtatious advances of the goddess Ishtar, she punishes him by having Enkidu killed. And so as Gilgamesh loses his best friend to death, he starts to question his own mortality. So he goes on a quest to discover how he can find eternal life when he comes across a man named Utnapishtim. Now, for any of you um, expecting mothers out there, and if you haven't picked out your child's name, the Epic of Gilgamesh offers viable options of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and Utnapishtim. I mean, come on, little, imagine. That one didn't go over so well. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that we'll have baby Utnapishtim here at Apex anytime soon, so you're welcome. But Utnapishtim is basically the Mesopotamian version of Noah. The gods warned him about a coming flood. He builds a watercraft to preserve his family and some animals in the craft lands on a mountain. Apparently the ancients heard a rumor about this type of thing. But the gods also gave Utnapishtim eternal life. And so Gilgamesh comes to him and he says, well, I can't really help you out with how I got eternal life. But he did tell Gilgamesh about an underwater sea plant at the bottom of the ocean that was rumored to give eternal life. So Gilgamesh goes, procures this plant but as he's traveling home, it is stolen from him by a serpent. So no eternal life for Gilgamesh. And it's interesting that that's the oldest written document that we have in uh, the oldest document we have is speculating and thinking about this thing of eternal life. And then of course we have the legends like, you know, King Arthur and the quest for the Holy Grail right? The, the, the cup of Christ at the Last Supper, and the rumor was anyone who drank of it would have eternal life. But if you find that cup in a couple of other cups, just be sure to choose wisely, as we learned from the third Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. And you have to know something about the, the speed of a swallow or something to get to it, something weird like that. I don't know. There's all kinds of legends that go along with that legend. And then, of course, there's le the legends of the explorer Ponce de Leon and the quest for the Fountain of Youth. So we have all these stories of, and stories and stories wanting eternal life. And in fact, there, even in, in the recent decades, there's been lots of science fiction written about this idea of uploading your consciousness to uh, some type of storage, whether a robot or uh, some kind of uh, hard drive. And in fact, there are some in the tech world today, though I suspect it's a minority, there are those in the tech world who suspect that in the coming decades, you'll be able to upload your consciousness to a cloud or the cloud. 
so that you can one day speak to your great, 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 great grandchildren. And billionaires, billionaires today, such as Jeff Bezos, are investing in lots in research dealing with human longevity. There are scientists studying a creature called the immortal jellyfish. Google it. <laughs> the immortal jellyfish, which can theoretically regenerate it itself over thousands of years, if not more. Humanity is striving in its own efforts, seeking eternal life. But Jesus here is saying, this isn't just wishful thinking. Eternal life is available to you, and it's available to you through me. Anyone who comes to me doesn't have to experience eternal death, but will live. However, immortality and living forever in of itself is not enough. We're not just looking for quantity, we need quality. And there are a number of stories that illustrate this as well. There's a, the story of the Greek myth of Tiphanus. Uh, Tiphanus was a guy and the, uh, a Greek goddess, the Greek goddess of the dawn falls in love with Tiphanus. And so she goes to Zeus and asks Zeus to grant Tiphanus eternal life. So Zeus obliges, he gives him eternal life. However, the issue we, we come to find is that he still ages. So he lived eternally, always aging, to the point where he became so weak, he couldn't lift his arms. What she did was she wished for eternal life, but she failed to ask for eternal youth. This is something like the island of immortals in the book Gulliver's Travels. This group of people who lived forever but constantly aged, and the more and more they aged, the more their minds became debased and uh, demented. Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, also wrote a short story called The Mortal Immortal. It's about a young man who drinks an elixir thinking that it will help him to fall out of love with a girl who had offended him. Well, fortunately, it didn't work because eventually they were reconciled and married. But he came to find out that the elixir extended his life up to perhaps eternal life. He wasn't sure how long he was going to live. He's telling the story uh, in, in, from his perspective at age 323, yet he still looked only 20 years old. So as he's looking young, his wife is aging, and eventually she dies. And the story is of him just wishing for death because even though he had lived, he was living this long life, everything he had loved had died. So living forever in of itself is not enough. So Jesus not only saves, Jesus satisfies. He says it doesn't have to be this way. You know, God evicts humans from the garden and away from the tree of life lest they live forever possibly because he didn't want them to live forever in a fallen condition. And indeed, those who do not come and receive the bread of life will live forever in a fallen condition, forever with their hunger, forever with their emptiness and dissatisfaction. But Jesus says it doesn't have to be this way. You can come to me and be satisfied. The, um, the French philosopher, theologian, mathemati mathematician, Blaise Pascal, he writes this, he says, what else does this craving 
and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in a man a true happiness of which now remain to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. He's saying, essentially, you know, a lot of speakers call this the, the God-shaped, God-sized hole, God-sized vacuum. They, they're paraphrasing Pascal here. He's saying there's an emptiness within us because we were once filled, but it's now gone. And, and we try to fill that emptiness with all of our surroundings. We try to, to fill it with um, anything we can to satisfy us, but they all are inadequate because it's a space that only God can fill. It reminds me a bit of King Solomon from Ecclesiastes chapter two. He's going through this checklist, just like you know, John Mayer did before. Um, he's saying, look, look, I did the building projects. I built great houses for myself. I have more money than I know what to do with. I've hired entertainment. I have servants. I can share my bed with whoever I want, basically. I have wine. I have gardens, I have my own private zoos. I've done all these things, and yet still, something's missing. Because it all feels meaningless. And still, I hated my life, he says. Now, Solomon had the kind of life that's one of those three wishes life. You know, if you meet a genie and you ask for three wishes, that's the kind of life that Solomon had. And yet still, it wasn't enough. C.S. Lewis agrees with Blaise Pascal. He says, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones there was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which fades away into the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may be excellent. The chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. These are all good things, right? So even Solomon, Solomon wasn't... Um, Solomon wasn't just contending with meaninglessness. meaninglessness. He was contending with the fact that uh, the, the disappointment of his successes. It's not just our failures and the bad things that bother us. It's the fact that our greatest moments and our greatest achievements, our, the greatest things in our life still aren't enough. And so marriage is a good thing, but it will not ultimately satisfy you. It's not the true bread. Learning is a good thing, but it will not ultimately satisfy you. It's not the true bread. Vacations are a good thing, but it's ultimately, they will not satisfy you. They are not the true bread. Neither is your career, neither is parenting, neither is money, neither is sex, neither is any job or title or office that you could attain to, no accomplishment. None of it is true bread that will satisfy you. Jesus says, do not work for the bread that spoils. You came to me because you're seeking bread. 
but you have your eyes fixed on completely the wrong thing, you're missing it. The true bread is in front of you and you're missing it. Don't miss it. All of these good things will evade us. Um, but Lewis goes on to explain why. He says, all that we call human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us a happiness, a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. What happens when you put diesel fuel in a car that does not run on diesel fuel? Not good things because it wasn't designed for it. And so as Pascal says, as we try to fill our own lives with all of these other things from all of our surroundings, marriage, our careers, learning, vacations, all these things, it's like running on diesel fuel. And sometimes we tell ourselves, well, that marriage isn't a good enough marriage. Maybe I need to go find another one. This career isn't satisfying me. Maybe I need to go find another one. This vacation was okay, but it wasn't good enough. I need to go on a more expensive one. You'll never find it because it is in God and in God alone. Augustine says our problem is not the fact that we love things too much, but that we love things out of order. Our issue is one of disordered love. You know, for example, if you love your career more than you love your family, what's going to happen to your family? Not good things. Your family will feel ignored. It's going to crumble. You've put your priorities out of order. Your loves are disordered. But of course, everything has to come under our love for God. God is the ultimate thing that satisfies us. And when we have that out of order, take for example, if you love your marriage, if you seek ultimate satisfaction in your marriage, it's going to disappoint you. And you're going to crush your spouse because they can't live up to the expectations of being your ultimate satisfaction. And if you look to your career as your ultimate satisfaction, you're going to work yourself to death and burn out. It is only God and only God. Augustine says this. He says to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I'm sure he wouldn't mind if we exchanged metaphors and talked about hunger. He could say, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are hungry. Our hearts are starving until we have feasted on you and are satisfied by you. And speaking of feasting, the Bible describes the age to come as a feast for God's people. And really, what's better? I mean, what is better than sitting with good food with people you love? That is just the best. It's like the highest of human experiences. 
And that is what we have with God. That is, that is, the, uh, that is the, the, the smallest picture that we get of the age to come. And so Jesus says, I have come to bring eternal life. Eternal life speaks to both the quantity and the quality. The, 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 you could translate the phrase eternal life to life unto the age. Life unto the age. Not the age, this present age of sin and death, but the life unto the age of the age to come when God comes to renew the earth. And Jesus says to those who come to him, I will give him eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. He's calling our own resurrection where we will live in renewed, resurrected, and glorified bodies. Not aging bodies like Tithonus. Not in selves that are sad and grieve like the mortal immortal. But in a condition where there is no pain, there is no sadness, there is no tears. That's eternal life. And Jesus says eternal life can be experienced now. You get glimpses of the age to come now, his own presence among you and within you, living in the already, though it is not yet. The tension of already and not yet. And I think there's something to be said about being satisfied when it comes to that. We, we can be satisfied in Christ, but honestly, in comparison to what we will one day experience, our satisfaction today is only a glimpse of the satisfaction to come. But that is a satisfying hope. Because honestly, I think most people in the world believe in something like eternal life or something like the afterlife, but I think a lot of people, it's kind of wishful thinking. It's just kind of a hope. There's no foundation for it. But those of us who have come to and have tasted the bread of life we know it's not just wishful, wishful thinking. We know it's just not some out there kind of hope. It is God coming as a human, acting in space-time history, doing real acts on earth, experiencing a real death and a real resurrection, which points to our own resurrection. And that is a satisfying hope. Now, Jesus goes on and really starts to freak people out in verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. Cannibals and vampires. People couldn't handle this. Who, who, can, who can stand to listen to this? Many of them went away. His disciples stayed. Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. And I can't help but wonder if this is one of those things where the disciples understood it better as things unfolded. Like in John chapter two, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And John comments after he rose from the dead, the disciples are like, okay, yeah, we, yeah, we remember he said that. We, we understand that now. I wonder if this is one of those things that they understood better after things unfolded. Here's the thing about food. 
almost everything you eat, other than say something like salt, everything else, basically everything you eat has to die. Even bread, you know, bread was once wheat, a living thing, but wheat had to be cut off from its source of life in order to become flour, in order to become bread, in order to become a part of you. It has to die. If you don't eat something that dies, you yourself will die. And when Jesus says, drink my blood, uh, you know, <laughs> there's, there are specific commands in the Torah and in, in the Jewish Old Testament that specifically forbid the drinking of blood. Is he asking them to violate Torah? Perhaps we can be helped as we remember a story of King David. King David is fighting the Philistines and one day he and his men are pinned down and he, he just kind of thinking out loud saying, oh, how I long for a drink of the water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. And three of his mighty men hear this. And so they bravely go out and they fight and they break through the Philistine lines in order to go and get some water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. And they bring it back to David. And David's, I mean, David's response is kind of like, oh, I didn't actually mean for you to do it. <laughs> he pours it out before the Lord saying, I can't be this kind of king who benefits from such great sacrifice. I can't benefit from this kind of risk, from this kind of sacrifice. He says, drinking this water would be like drinking their blood. And so for David to say, I can't benefit from this sacrifice, Jesus tells us that's exactly what you need to do. You need to benefit from this sacrifice. The only way that you will have life is if you benefit from this sacrifice and drink my blood. And I think that we can, we can sort of become too used to, to this idea of his life for our life, his life in exchange for ours. We can become almost so comfortable with that. We're just so used to it that it just kind of like moves right through us. And as I've thought about that, it, this, this thing has come to mind as, I don't know about you, <clears throat> I find sometimes that I eat too fast. Anybody else? Sometimes you eat too fast, and so we, we, we kind of inhale our food, right? We, we devour it, and we barely even swallow it. I mean, or we barely even taste it before we swallow it. I mean, we just kind of swallow it straight down without tasting it, without taking much note of it. We're not very mindful about our food as we eat it. I mean, we might be distracted. We might be looking at our phones or whatever. And it's just kind of this mechanical thing that we're doing, like filling a tank of gas. We swallow without tasting. And I have found that I could also do the thing, that same thing when it comes to the things of God. I can swallow without tasting. I can pray and not really be mindful of it. I can read the scriptures and not really be mindful of it. You know, consider a phrase like Jesus died for sinners. Okay, yeah, I'm used to it, yeah. I can swallow that and it just goes straight to my head. I could read pages and pages of atonement theory and it just goes straight to my head. It's just academic facts, it's information. Jesus is the bread of life and he is meant to be tasted and savored. So we need to slow down. Slow down. Don't just swallow it, but taste it and savor it. 
That's actually an applicable challenge I have for each of you today. You can practice it today. I think that, and roughly in about an hour or within the next two hours, most of us will be eating lunch today, right? My challenge to you is to slow down and to taste and savor your food. Most of the time, our food before us, we, we don't consider the fact that it was once alive. In our heads, we think that it kind of magically incarnated in our refrigerators. But we also don't, we don't taste it. So slow down, actually taste it. Observe the flavors and the notes and appreciate the textures of it. Don't just mind, mindlessly swallow it. Be mindful about your eating and let that be an object lesson for you and the things of God as you pray, as you read your scriptures, as you worship, as you go out and live your life, taste and savor. Because a Jesus that is enjoyed is a satisfying Jesus. Taste and savor. And as we savor, We'll notice the different flavors of Jesus. One of those may be different aspects of him. One of those might be his love. Have you thought about the love of Jesus lately? The love of Jesus is different, completely different than any other love than you, than you will ever experience. It is a full and complete and perfect love. And the fact is that Jesus knows you. He fully knows you. He knows you inside and out in a way that no other human can know you. He knows your every thought before you think it. He knows every word and deed before you say it and do it. No one else can do that. Could you, I mean, would you be okay if other people knew your every thought? I don't know if I would have any friends. <laughs> Jesus knows the thoughts that you don't even know are coming and he loves you anyway. And he loves you with the kind of love that gave himself up for you to be with you and to be within you. Is, can you find that kind of love anywhere else? That is the love you have been looking for your entire life. The love that you've always been longing for. In Jesus is the love you've been longing for. In Jesus is the meaning, purpose, and identity you have been longing for. In Jesus is the grace and mercy and forgiveness your soul has been starving for. And in Jesus is the pleasure that all your other pleasures are pointing to. And those are merely the flavors of the bread. But Jesus himself is the bread. And we take him in and he becomes a part of us. Taste and savor and see that he is satisfying. Final thought. This portion of John chapter six clearly has notes of the Exodus in it. In fact, John mentions that this happens around the time of Passover. That's an Exodus theme, right? A multitude of people were fed in the wilderness with this miraculous feeding of bread. Again, that's Exodus. In fact, they mentioned the manna. And here we have this miraculous crossing of a body of water. 
For the Israelites, the Red Sea parted. Here, Jesus doesn't bother to part the sea. He just walks right on top of it. This is all, it's all about the Exodus. But we remember that with the Exodus, God re not only redeemed a people from slavery, he redeems them, but he also commissions them. He saves them in order to send them. He makes them into a kingdom of priests to represent him before the nations so that they can see what it is like when a people is in covenant relationship with Yahweh so that they too would come to taste and to be satisfied. And it's the same with us. As Jesus saves us, he saves us in order to send us. As Peter says, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, called out of darkness and into his marvelous light to declare those excellencies. And so as we live our lives, I can't help but wonder, is there such a way that we can live that shows we are satisfied in Jesus so that a hungry and unsatisfied world can look at your life and ask, how are you so satisfied? Essentially what they're asking is, where did you get your bread? And we can show them where there is bread and that there's plenty of it. We can show them where the true bread is. But to live in such a way, often to, in this satisfied way that gets the attention of an unsatisfied world often happens in less than ideal circumstances, in times of hardship and suffering. It is in those hard times of hardship and suffering when your life still declares that Jesus is enough when, an when a watching world says, where did you get that bread? And we get the pleasure and the privilege of showing them where.